A spiritual awakening is taking place around the globe, and you can be a part of it. For the first time ever in human history, we are truly one world. And now we must face the implications of what that means for our understanding of spirituality, the nature of reality, and one another. As a direct descendant of the founding families of one of today's largest global religions, I was born in the center of a worldwide spiritual crisis. Like my pioneer ancestors, I'm blazing a new trail, embracing a global sense of spirituality based on personal practice, spiritual community, and direct experience of the divine. I'm Benjamin William Decker. Welcome to the Modern Spirituality Podcast. Hey, it's Ben Decker. Welcome to the Modern Spirituality Podcast. I can't wait to introduce you today to my guest, to my friend, Amanda Gilbert. She's a meditation teacher, speaker, and lecturer of mindfulness at the University of Southern California, no big deal, and the author of the beautiful book published by Shambhala uh, called Kindness Now, a 28-day guide to living with authenticity, intention, and compassion. It really is a beautiful book. Link in the show notes if you want to check it out on Amazon. Uh, before dedicating herself to teaching full-time, Amanda was center director uh, for the Aging Metabolism and Emotions Center at the University of California, San Francisco, conducting clinical research and publishing investigations on the biological and psychological effects of mindfulness and meditation. Her formal meditation training has been with UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center in Primordial Sound with Deepak Chopra, where I also studied and within the Insight Meditation tradition at Insight LA, Amanda's teachings span from coast to coast in the U.S. as well as online. She's led meditation for top companies and startups like NBC, Paramount Pictures, The W Hotels, Merrill Lynch, Macy's, and YouTube. She's also been featured in Vogue, 10% Happier, Tricycle Magazine, and so much more. She's a bright ray of sunshine, so joyful, so energetic and so insightful. I can't wait to introduce you to her. Please welcome Amanda Gilbert. Okay, Amanda, I'm so happy to be doing this with you. Thank you for being here. Ben, I'm delighted. I'm so happy to be here too. Okay, so I've always really appreciated um, your ability to be both like very grounded, down-to-earth, spiritual, and academic. Mm. And have that very refined side of you. Mm. So, so tell me a little bit about that. Like, talk to me about how you experience that. I appreciate you noticing that, Ben, and and picking up on that because ever since I started teaching meditation full time, which now is beautifully like seven or eight years ago. I was aware that I was walking almost like a line where I had one foot in the world of spirituality and even the world of like contemporary meditation. And then my other foot was very grounded in academia, but also the clinical research of mindfulness meditation and also the more classic traditional teachings and style of facilitating mindfulness and Buddhist-based meditation. So I knew from the very beginning that I would often be almost dancing upon this line. And at first, I actually thought I had to make a choice, like choose one camp or the other camp. And that would maybe be better for me long-term, or I even thought at that point in like my early career of teaching. But then my true authenticity, the more I tuned into myself, especially early on in my teaching career, that didn't feel in alignment. That didn't feel authentic. It actually felt most me to keep planted and rooted in my academic background, but also be modern, be fun, be uh, passionate about what I'm passionate about, and to allow myself to have one foot in both worlds, so to speak. And then moving forward to present time, again, seven or eight years later, I actually am so glad that I listened to my heart and that I listened to myself because what it's like to 
to be able to pull from the clinical background, but then share the science of meditation or share more classic and traditional Buddhist teachings, even um, in a modern contemporary way, way, I think is part of my medicine that I share. And it's part of my path as a teacher and a facilitator is to be able to meet modern audiences, modern practitioners, to be able to understand, you know, the current trends on TikTok or to be able to understand like what's what's trending in like modern wellness or with Gen Z or with millennials right now or Gen X and to like adapt the teachings, the traditional teachings to modern current times. So I'm really glad that I listened, you know, to my heart early on in my teaching path and I like pulling from both realms and from both uh, foundations. It feels really good and really authentic to me. And, you know, you do it so beautifully. And I have so much respect for that approach. And it's actually, um, I think on one hand, I'm a Libra. So I'm always like, well, on Mm. one hand this and on one hand that, you know, I'm very comfortable with um, holding in my awareness, you know, seemingly conflicting ideas, you know, um, on one hand, it seems really rare. Um, you know, your combination of, of spiritual and academic. And then on another hand, it's actually extremely common. It's just that you have really owned it and you Mm. have what's especially rare. I think about you is how out of the closet you are, um, in both ways. You're not you're not extravagantly uh, emphatic in one direction or the other. You're very much balanced and very much yourself um, in the space of both of those things, which, you know, as someone who feels similarly, I'm, I have deep respect for academia, deep respect for uh, clinical wisdom, information, data, and also I'm a very spiritual person. So, I can also experience the nuance and uniqueness of the individual direct experience and how it doesn't always immediately at first glance find its home in an academic or clinical context, you know? Mm. Um, Yes. So I deeply recognize major namaste to you (sighs) in your ability to navigate it. so elegantly mm. and and i Thank think you, that's, ben. that's very much like the aquarian age you know it's very much mm. like the the new the new chapter and i think that when um you know when i think about the establishment of a new um you know, it's like that phrase, the new world order, not the totalitarian interpretation of that phrase, but it's original. Um, the Where that phrase originally found its place was in an esoteric context. And so this, con- this esoteric context of the new world order is actually an awakened new world order um, hmm. where where we're not governed by outside in policies, but by inside out virtues. Yes. And so I see your approach and your entire career as this amazing bridge of the past and the future in like the embodiment of the present. And Mm -hmm. I just know that like you are at the very beginning of something like you're saying seven (laughs) or eight years, and I'm like, yeah, and it's going to be like 70 or 80 years. Like, this is a very long-term thing that you're, that you're on. I very much see um, you as like one of the key core teachers for our generation um, and your work as being seminal for future generations. Ben, well, I remember one of the last times that we connected and talked, it was both acknowledging that for the two of us too, I really, really love that we get to have the precious privilege of being meditation and spiritual teachers at this time. And I know both of us like hold 
and feel the responsibility of that in a really deep way. And I like what you brought in around this concept of the new world order, where we are being asked to move from the inside outwards. And I think where this particularly applies to academia, clinical research, and the more traditional context that both you and I have studied in is I feel like there's almost a call for modern meditation teachers like ourselves to be able to um, not necessarily always play in the pre-existing established box, even in meditation traditions and lineages. We honor and respect our tradition so much. You and I have talked about this at great length. You've shared about um, you know, your studies in Zen Buddhism and with Thich Nhat Hanh's community and all of the other great teachers that you've practiced with and studied with. And for me, I hold my lineage, I hold my that really like my relationship to the Dharma, to the Buddhist teachings as the most sacred thing in my life. When I think about what it is I love the most or what it is I feel like has deeply met me and healed me in my life, it's the Dharma. And I'm grateful for the Dharma like every single moment of the day. And coming from that place, such deep respect and deep deep reverence for tradition, for the classical teachings, um, I think actually gives teachers like in our peers and our colleagues um, who who relate to traditional teachings in the same way, a lot of room to allow ourselves to blossom the teachings in the current vernacular of the times. And a saying and a phrase really common in a lot of my um, insight and Vipassana-based meditation circles is that the Buddha actually meant for his teachings to always be shared and spoken in the vehicle and in the vernacular of the times. And when I heard that, that just registered so deeply within me. And it gave me a, a deeper permission actually to speak the teachings or to share the teachings in, you know, in current language and to give reference to, again, like what is trending on TikTok or what it is we're dealing with in current events. And as um, as just current modern people. So I am with you and I love that we're both playing the long game as well. And it's a privilege to to be able to share in, a, in the long form. A hundred percent. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, I, and I, having been initiated into a number of different spiritual lineages, um, my relationship is similar uh, even though on the surface I've, I've received some, you know, kind of pushback and, and yeah. like some negative publicity and, and negative um, uh, reaction to the fact that I have so much deep love and respect for multiple traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, although I have gone the, the very traditional path of initiation into these, into a number of them, not to all of them, but I have reverence. It's like here, it's like, there's a larger field where my reverence lies. And then my initiate, my formal direct personal initiations are, it's like a smaller field where I've actually been. And, and then there's like a place where they all overlap. And that's like the, I think it's like the inner flame of each of the teachings um, and it's truth. You know, the, there's um, an expression that one of my, um, a teacher who, who passed on long before I was ever born, um, but who deeply impacted my life is a woman named Helena Blavatsky. She founded the Theosophical Society, which studied theology and philosophy uh, and her, um, her, one of her famous quotes is there is no religion higher than truth. Mm. And, um, it was through the Theosophical Society that Krishnamurti was discovered, um, and raised and, uh, Gandhi was a theosophist. Um, Shunru Suzuki was a theosophist. Um, some, some of the most, uh, influential, 
teachers, and we we tend to associate them with the lineage that they 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 claim, but they were actually members of this society that intentionally, proactively sought truth in other lineages. So so that's actually like where my my reverence, I, I hold reverence for the Dharma in the same way. When you were saying everything about your reverence for the, for the Dharma, I ha- was getting chills. I was like, same. Mm. And also, I identify that same spirit, that same inner flame in the Vedic lineage, which I'm also initiated into through the Chopra lineage. Mm-hmm. Uh, same. Yeah. So we carry that, you know, <laughs> yeah. we carry that, you know, and it's like the way you said it, you didn't say I'm a Vedic, blah, 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 blah. But it's one of your, you are a lineage holder. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have been initiated. We're, we're sisters, we're cousins mm-hmm. or whatever in the, mm-hmm. in the Chopra lineage through Maharishi Mahashyogi in the Vedic teachings as well, you know? And um, I think that if the Buddha were here, uh, he wouldn't, really like that for example um each each guenka buddhist uh each, each guenka vipassana center is sort of independently managed you know mm-hmm. um and so they're they're not all quite exactly the same in their restrictions for guests but here in bali i was actually rejected from coming i've been on eight 10-day retreats of vipassana mm-hmm. all over the place mm-hmm. And I was rejected from coming here because of my relationship to the mantra-based Vedic practice. And they literally said to me, if you commit to no longer teaching or practicing any other techniques than the Vipassana taught technique, then you can come. And I was like, wow, I don't think the Buddha would have wanted that. Hmm. I, the, I don't think the, the great seeker of truth that the Buddha actually was would be in the context of this world, in the context of this moment, and look at Ben Decker and say, no, he can't go on this 10-day retreat. Uh, completely. And <laughs> I, actually, I actually feel like this also ties into what we were just speaking about a few moments ago about this, the new world order and this opportunity for us to even um, be okay with breaking out of the mold or the pre-existing boxes that practice or any tradition and lineage has been operating in. Where can we update the operating systems, even within um, the framework of lineage right mm-hmm. now. And um, I, I'm with you because the Buddha's um, teachings, the Dharma, I mean, one of the direct translations is truth. The Dharma is, is truth. It's a universal truth. It is mm-hmm. what it's the operating principles. It's the principles of reality that we're all working within and that we're all living within. And um, I do feel like if the Buddha was here in Bali with you <laughs> and he was like right next to you, that he would have been like, all right, everyone, let's take a moment and reconsider this. Again, how can we share the teachings in the vernacular of the times? And there's a piece of me too. We're having this conversation right now um, in a very intense uh, time and, and couple of weeks in in the world in um, 2022, March of 2022. And I feel like how everything's unfolded over the past year and a half or two years, especially anything that divides, anything that separates in a way where it um, doesn't honor the multiple realities and the multiple opinions that all of us can hold as individuals. I really hold that very tenderly in my heart and mind right now, um, meaning that uh, where is the opportunity to foster belonging? Where is the opportunity to foster interconnectedness and connection? Where is the, f- the opportunity to extend kindness and compassion whenever possible, instead of building walls, creating barriers, or creating unnecessary separation. 
Absolutely. You know, and I think that, um, you know, as meditation teachers, uh, we were often like teaching workshops or retreats and things like that. And something that one of my mentors, Marianne Williamson, taught me by her example is that you often see if she's speaking on a spiritual theme, you will always Mm. see no one is turned away for inability to pay. Yes. And so I've always respected that so much. And and I have adopted that where, you know, whether a workshop is $35 or, or it's a, you know, multiple thousand dollar retreat, you know, resources permitting, we've we've got to try to create some kind of way where there's a path for someone to come in even if they don't have the financial resources uh, that available at that time you know to participate you know so there's also like that capitalistic barrier there's the lineage barriers uh Mm. where it's kind of like well no you can't participate because you're christian or no you can't participate because you practice this other technique and we have our like lineage versus lineage. My lineage is better than your lineage um, sort of uh, religious level competition, right. um, which also does exist in academia in, in its own way in the academic context. Um, academia is known for being very competitive. Um, and, uh, and so we also see it. So we are seeing it in all the ways that are, are biblical. We're seeing it in all the ways that are that have been this way. To use another Marianne Williamson phrase, she says, "Twas always thus. It was twas always thus. It was always the people who, uh, you know, in the Bible, it was like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It was like the two sects of Judaism and the and the high rabbis of those two sects who knew the whole thing, who wore the expensive robes." who wanted, who loved being called master, master, who prayed loudly on stages and in front of audiences um, and collected money. They collected mm-hmm. their, you know, they made that paper, you know, and um, it's, these are the same themes that we see cor- corrupting the authentic spiritual development of the collective in today's world. I love that. You just landed us in just the most poignant phrase for this. Um, and I also think I like what you're bringing in a lot around the accessibility piece. One thing I've always also really valued as a teacher is radical accessibility with um, folks being able to, to practice, with folks being able to access the teachings and the techniques and the modalities and the healing that their hearts and minds are requiring or yearning for or desiring or truly needing. Um, and I think part of this new wave of wellness, spirituality, meditation, mindfulness in any context is how can we make practice? How can we make healing? How can we make meditation radically accessible? in any Mm -hmm. way possible. And of course, you know, we hold right livelihood in part of the picture. Of course, we hold, um, you know, wanting to keep retreat centers open and having everybody be supported in the greater picture of practice as well. Mm -hmm. But to your point, um, inviting in opportunities and doorways for folks who do have certain barriers, whether it's financial, whether it's um, practicing in dual lineages, whatever it may be, what is, again, what is it like to dissolve the barriers, the walls of separation? What is it like to really be in this vibration of radical accessibility for the teachings? I don't know about you, but that just resonates so well in my mind, body, heart Mm -hmm. system. Talk about the truth. That feels true to me. Absolutely. Yeah. I get I get truth goosebumps when you say that, you know, <laughs> radical accessibility is the true new world order. There's yes. there's sort of like this shadow new world order, which is actually not a new world order. It's a it's a it's a reincarnation of the old world order, which is trying to control through intimidation, through control through 
through manipulation of resources, through manipulation of information, distribution of information, propaganda. That's the old world order reincarnated. That's not the new world order. Uh, there's a there's this phrase where people are like, oh, there's these like military superpowers trying to create a new world order where where these different uh, regimes will be in control. That's that's a very, very superficial new world order. That's not a new world order, what they're trying to do. Totalitarianism, uh, control of mass populations, uh, extraordinary amounts of wealth in the hands of very few people. That's, mm. that's not new at all. There's not a single new thing about that order. That's the old world order uh, calling itself something new. It's not new. Just because something is calling itself new doesn't mean it's new. That's the old world order with new faces and new names and new flags. That's, mm. that's not the new world order. The true new world order that this new era will manifest is what you're talking about, radical accessibility. And it's so crucial that we simultaneously honor each lineage so we don't lose the profound symbolism and the pr profound esoteric secrets encoded in each one. And we also have to allow the, the expansion of, of what it means so that we can actually see a planet initiated, yes. an entire global initiation. And it doesn't really matter if you're initiated into the core teachings of Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, this school of Buddhism, that school of Buddhism, Taoism, uh, uh, the Hindu Vedic teachings, shamanic teachings. It basically doesn't matter from my perspective, which one is where you take your step one. It's kind of yes. like, it's kind of like if you're going to go to USC where you're a professor, <laughs> if you're going to go to USC, it kind of doesn't matter where you went to kindergarten. It matters that you went to kindergarten. And so, so what we, what we really need is like, there's also within like all these conspiracy theories around this notion of the new world order, there's this conspiracy around the notion of the new world religion. And a lot of very religious people are afraid of that phrase. And there, and it's like acts as like a trigger where they're like, Oh, they're trying to eliminate <clears throat> Christianity or they're trying to eliminate my religion. And it's like, no, 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 no. Keep it. We like it. We like all the religions, okay? The new world religion is actually not a new religion. The new world religion is a complete new way of the collective relationship with the religious experience. Um, I love William James's book, The Varieties of, of Religious mm -hmm. Experience. Mm -hmm. um, and that was one of my earliest uh, introductions to this notion that culture language, society, uh, environmental context, all feeds into the way we relate to the one thing that's actually real, which is truth with a capital T. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, uh, you know, my, from my relating and my point of view too, Ben, when we really take a look at so many of the core principles of any religion or any tradition of practice or meditation, the overlap is truth and the overlap is also love. And yes. right, right. And to me, when I really anchor myself in that truth and that fundamental truth that no matter what doorway in each individual human being is stepping into, we're all stepping into the doorway and the opportunity to uncover and rediscover love and like true unconditional love to use like the Buddhist context, even our true nature is one of open heartedness and one of unconditional love and kindness and compassion. And in my cross-cultural studies and my understanding of all of the major world's religions, um, in many of the, even the contemporary med meditation modalities I've been exposed to, that is there, that is spoken to, that is pointed at, that is also a goal and a trajectory that each different lineage or each different school of um, ideology points 
the practitioner towards is that state of love, that truth of love. And, you know, to your point, that gets obscured by all of the, you know, the control or the uh, need to manipulate, the need to protect or to protect the few at the top of the echelon, etc. But if we peel all of that back, all of that old world mentality back, we're all in a sense, walking our way back home to use uh, Bhava Ram Das's beautiful phrase and terminology, we're all walking each other back home to the truth of love, to the truth of love, of the love of who we really truly are. Mm-hmm. And that um, is something that I often think about. And it's something that I really almost hold as like my own, you know, f- like flagship <laughs> over here when it comes to practice is I, I take my stance in letting people uncover the truth of who they are, which is love, in any way that is supportive to them uniquely in their own healing journey and path. Right, right. And that's so crucial too, is the love doesn't, <clears throat> excuse me, love doesn't have this quality of needing you to conform. Mm. Um, and there's yeah. a wonderful book by harry overstreet called the mature mind and um it's out there it's it's not as easy to get but it's it's out there and one of the things that he says he said to love a person is the affirmation of that person Mm. the affirmation of someone's like authentic essence and um love doesn't say i need you to change i need you to do this there's there's change involved in relationship, there's change and growth involved in the, the personal life and journey. But love doesn't say, oh, you'll learn that way. I'm going to need you to learn this way. You know, love, right. love meets you where you're at. Um, that's what, you know, I was raised Christian. The Jesus went to the sinners. Jesus went to, to use the Bible language. Jesus went to the people where they were. And he didn't sit in his high place and say, I'm actually the son of God. I'm a miracle worker. Line up. You want help? Get in, get in line. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he went out into the world and he went into the leper colonies and he went to the streets where the people were and he met them where they were. And he's considered the God of love. So we see like this embodiment of love. What does love yeah. do? Love seeks out. Um, and I know that that's, you know, the way we've expressed it is, is slightly different, you know, in, in your book versus my book. The, <clears throat> my first book, Practical Meditation for Beginners, was all about that exact concept of the reality that every person has a different learning style, a different set of proclivities and and nuances to their own personalities and, and ways of, of expanding and learning, developing themselves. So in that book, I introduce the basic techniques of a number of different meditation practices. And um, of course, it was very controversial because it was all in one book teaching people from, you know, the techniques of multiple lineages. Are you kidding me? And it's like, this is a level one thing. Mm-hmm, if someone mm-hmm. wants to really go down a rabbit hole, the resources are are introduced so that so that anyone could really have that moment. It's like if you are looking for uh, learning to meditate and you go to a, a transcendental meditation center, a lot of times you don't go in there. You don't. They don't say, "Look, there's a lot of different ways of meditating. We're going to teach you one way of meditating," and and there are other ways that are also really effective that we're never going to teach you. They don't do that, you know? And, and when you go to a Vipassana right. center, same thing. They say, this is how you meditate. And, and you're not really introduced to the fact that actually there are a lot of doors into that building. There's not one entrance, not one grand entrance, you know? Um, and with your book, you, you take it even, I think, even a step further, where mine's technique-focused. Uh, yours is is virtue focused. And so your book, Mm. Kindness Now, emphasizes that thing that you just said, Kindness Now, you you identified truth and love. Love Mm. is that that place where all the traditions come together. And so you approach 
your book, Kindness Now, which is gorgeous in every possible sense of the word. L- love it. I wouldn't expect a single thing less yeah. from you. Um, but you approach it from particularly the Buddhist perspective in the through what we call the Brahma Viharas. Is that right? Yes, yes. It's um, a 28-day program, meditation program and guide actually on the Brahma Viharas, the Buddhist teachings, the classic teachings on the heart practices or the heart practices of mindfulness meditation. Love that. And I have to just say congratulations. Your first book being published by Shambhala. Shambhala is like as mm. legit as it comes. <laughs> and um, and it really is a wonderful book. Let's. Do you mind if we go deeper into the book? Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you, Ben. Um, I do want to just pause and say, uh, though, that one of the things I loved about your first book um, that we were just talking about was the fact that it provided such a array of um, practice for beginner meditators. And um, I almost feel like that is part of the role that we have as modern meditation teachers is to share the techniques that we know will land with that particular student. And a book like yours is the doorway into that opportunity for each individual to find the flavor of technique, the exact modality, the mindful moment, the Zen moments, the um, affirmation, the mantra, whatever speaks to their mind and heart, that is their path at that moment. Um, And I actually share, so we can segue into the book, Kindness Now, because I actually, one of the stories I share in Kindness Now is my own journey from starting my daily meditation practice as a Vedic meditator, where I was initiated into primordial sound meditation and studied um, with Deepak Chopra and all the wonderful guides and teachers at the Chopra Center. Um, And one of the things to this day that I so love and value about the Vedic approach to consistent or daily meditation is that uh, meditating twice a day, the bookend approach to yes. consistent practice. Mm-hmm. And the way it was taught to me was meditating first thing in the morning. You do your 20 to 30 minutes of meditation first thing. Um, one of the teachers used to actually call it you RPM in the morning, which is rise pee and meditate, whatever (laughs) version of yours that is, that's what you do. And then at the end of the day, after work, maybe before dinner, after dinner, before your evening wind down routine, you meditate again, you bookend Mm -hmm. your day with another 20 to 30 minutes of meditation. Uh, They also called that raw right after work meditation. And that is what got me going as a daily practitioner was that really regimented routine and approach that what I think was is really highly emphasized in Vedic meditation. Um, and also the concept of sadhana. You know, what is it like to create a spiritual practice or to create a routine of practice that really motivates you and really inspires you and makes your heart sing uh, with excitement about showing up and doing the hard work of meditation too. I really appreciated that quality of Vedic practice. And then, you know, of course, understanding that since my days of being a Vedic meditator and um, I was initiated as a teacher with primordial sound meditation as well, I really found my path in the mindfulness um, settings and then in Buddhist centers. And so, you know, if anything, I think to pause and allow our listeners and our audience to maybe really tune into their own hearts and to acknowledge their own path of practice right now and to understand that our chapters of meditation or our chapters of practice will all look, you know, different. And we don't necessarily have to subscribe to just one path of practice for our entire lives um, as well. We can commit, you know, one of my early teachers actually from the Chopra Center, I met with him at this very interesting crossroads when I was starting to sit with mindfulness and Buddhist 
meditation groups and I was still doing like my mantra based meditation in the morning. And I was sharing that with him. I was like, okay, don't worry. I'm still using my mantra in the morning, but then my evening afternoon practice, I'm practicing with mindfulness. I'm doing mindfulness of breath, mindfulness of breathing. And he just paused and he, he goes, well, how is that going for you? And I was like, I don't know, you know, it's going okay. I think I can keep it together in that way. I can still do the mantra in the morning and, and the mindfulness in the afternoon. He goes, well, let's just pause and consider that in some level of skillfulness, that's wonderful that both lineages and both paths of practice are speaking to you. Um, at the same time, let's not confuse your precious, beautiful mind, Amanda, because, you know, um, I think his takeaway is whatever modality is most speaking to you, recognize that and then commit to it enough so you can really give it the opportunity to mm. do what it's meant to do. So the mechanisms can really get in there and play out in your mind, body, heart field. And I took that to heart. That just registered as truth for me. And I took like a couple of months still doing the same thing, my mantra meditation in the morning, mindfulness in the afternoon. But I let it be such an organic process over those couple months of really tuning in which meditation style and modality is really speaking to my heart and my mm -hmm. mind the most. And then my truth came out within those few months of inquiry. And I was like, oh, even though I love my mantra, I've been practicing with it for like six, seven, eight, nine years or something at that point. I realized that what was actually meeting me the most and meeting my heart and my healing journey the most was mindfulness and mindfulness's ability to work with thoughts in the mind a little bit more skillfully than um, mantra-based meditation in my view and in my opinion. And then what was also really helpful for me in my practice at that time was mindfulness framework for learning how it is to work with and recognize our emotions. So Yes. It was almost like mindfulness was able to help me do the inner healing work that me and my practice actually really needed at the time. So I pivoted right. and I share that story in kindness now. I love that. <clears throat> I love that. You know, and I feel like for, for all different personalities, some people are going to do really well, for example, with, um, let's, let's relate it to, uh, like physical movement. Let's make, let's relate it. Let's parallel it to like, you know, a workout. Some people um, are true athletes and they are, you know, let's say they're weight trainers. Let's say they're a bodybuilder. A bodybuilder is going to have their approach There's to weight training. And after a while, you've got to add more weights. And after a while doing, doing, uh, these three different chest exercises are, it's not, not actually going to be enough. And you're going to have to actually add two more chest exercises. And whereas a beginner weight trainer, one chest exercise is probably a really great place to start, you know, right. you know, just to do, <laughs> just to do the one. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, if you see me in the gym and you see a bodybuilder in the gym, where some of what we're doing is from a technical perspective, very similar. Um, but, but the, what the bodybuilder is doing that I'm not doing is, um, a whole series of things that are more advanced that aren't really even relevant for me right now. And, and the thing is, there's also people, I'm a, I'm an athletic person. Um, I do work out a lot. I do have my trainer and in, even in like fitness training, they're like, it's better to have one guru. <laughs> they're like, they're like, they're like, can, mm -hmm. they're like, don't have two trainers. Don't train with someone on, on the weekend and me during the week. Like let's mm. have one trainer, you know? And, um, and so I would say like somewhere, like if there's someone who's very sedentary and, and unhealthy and doesn't work out and they, you know, they have like a hard time getting into movement. And then there's the bodybuilder. I'm probably like exactly right between them. I'm probably like the exact middle path between those two characters. And, and so for me, I'm on, I'm on this journey with this trainer. I've got my, my 15 session package with this trainer. I'm doing the thing. I've, we've got an arrangement on my, on when and how I'm going to work out. 
we've got an agreement on my nutrition strategy and and my supplementing strategy and it's on and however someone at the at the very beginning of their process who's who's very sedentary doesn't do a lot of working out in their body for a while there for a season there that person would probably do well to try a couple different kinds of group fitness classes, maybe a kickboxing class, maybe a Pilates class, maybe a yoga class, maybe do some training with a, with a weight trainer, you know, and, and then they're going to find the things maybe for a little while yoga twice a week and working with their trainer a couple times a week, maybe that's the right move. And then maybe after a while they find that, you know what? I completely dread weight training, but I feel great in a yoga class. So after a while, we find that, okay, here, here's your, your approach, you know? And so I think like the, the magic of like, you know, we're talking about for a beginner, for a beginner, it's like, don't, I think we have to be really flexible with each other and, and honor the fact Mm. that we're all in different seasons. And it's not that you're further along than me or I'm further along than them or anything like that. It's more like the, the moments and the dynamics in life are so complex that Mm. in this moment to learn to be truly present in this moment, uh, I like you am Really, when it comes to my my true personal practice, I am a, a mindfulness practitioner. Um, open awareness tends to be my my go to place. Mm-hmm. When I sit down to meditate, I drop and I just I, I enter into the open awareness space. And as things arise, I, I I tend to feel like I have more room to experience the nuances of the thoughts and emotions that arise in that open awareness space. I don't tend to go right back to my mantra. However, as someone who's been meditating with different techniques for the better part of my entire life, I was, I first became meditating. I first was introduced to meditation regularly um, at age four. So I, I have been meditating. I'm 34. I've been meditating my, basically my entire life. So I have, and I also have access to a lot of techniques. If my mind is really racing, if I'm in a an almost like a high high anxiety state, which I I have gone there, I do have the occasional slump of depression, and I do have the occasional sort of panic and anxiety uh, within within mm-hmm. a normal spectrum, I think, and mm-hmm. um, and I have found that my initiation and my relationship to my my transcendental meditation practice my primordial sound meditation vedic practice serves me when i'm my most manic when something when i'm in the experience of chaos the mantra helps settle me enough to be able to access the open awareness practice. Um, and so it's kind of like, uh, that, that bodybuilder who's really got their fitness training going. They, they've got their strategy, they've got their long-term strategy, but occasionally they need a yoga class, you know, (laughs) and, uh, and and they may not be like the, they may not be a yogini, but I, mm-hmm. I, I like to think that we're entering into a chapter of human society and, and collective culture where that's going to continue to be more understood and more accepted, that, that the practice will adapt and change. And just because I did mantra yesterday when I was going through this really stressful moment doesn't mean I'm no longer a mindfulness practitioner. Just because I'm practicing mindfulness and occasionally using a mantra doesn't mean I don't love Jesus, for example. <laughs> you know, like, right. like there's, there's, a, there's a nuanced context. If we are to establish a new world order of radical accessibility of a, of a peaceful, a truly peaceful society that we have collectively graduated beyond war, we're we're going to have to also hold a lot of space for each other's practice. I love that so much, Ben. I'm deeply resonating with that because I know for for me, um, 
I, why I deeply resonate with that is because it's been a whole process for me to be able to have the same sort of daily practice with my fitness and exercise routine as I've had with my meditation routine. So I actually empathize with folks who say to me, I'm having a really hard time creating a daily meditation practice, even just for three or five minutes, or I'm having a hard time finding the style of meditation that works for me or feels like it is going to resonate with my mind the most or help me work with thoughts in the mind, for example. And with my own journey through finding the right sort of exercise and fitness modality that really makes me want to move my body and uh, to exercise each day, I understand that that experience directly. And I like what you just brought in too around, can we give ourselves enough spaciousness and permission to experiment and to not have to subscribe or hit subscribe to any particular preconceived idea or path or laid out roadmap that is even given to us until we really do step into the direct experience enough to know that it's the right class or practice or lineage or tradition for us. And I actually like to share this with some of my students in the framework of building up a meditation toolbox or a practice toolbox where all of these different tools and techniques that you're learning from, yes, from mindfulness or from breath work or from mindful movement or from yoga or from any other spiritual contemplative practice or tradition that speaks to you, almost file that specific practice meditation or technique into your inner toolbox of resources or your meditation toolbox And know that that technique is available to you to pull out in that moment of need. Like you were saying, whenever I'm in a high state of of anxiousness, my body and my mind and my heart goes to the mantra. And that is the exact remedy and prescription. It's the meditation modality prescription for that high peak state of anxiety. And I think that's the purpose of our toolbox I think that is actually what makes practice really prescriptive and beautiful in that way. And, uh, you know, one of the ways I really formulated the, the kindness now um, teachings on the heart practices of, of Buddhist meditation was in that same approach. How do we share the practices of loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity in a way that does feel prescriptive and relevant, uh, prescriptive and relevant, and also mobilized for the times. Mm-hmm. So, in kindness, now I we go week by week. We spend one week on loving kindness, one week on compassion, one week on appreciative joy, which I think is one of the edgiest practice for modern day meditators. I don't know what, what I, I would love to hear what you think about that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we spend week four on equanimity. And within each of the days of practice, we break it down where um, I share a brief set of teachings to really inspire and motivate the mind and the heart to understand what it is they're actually, the reader's actually doing in that specific day of practice, that specific loving kindness meditation or that specific compassion meditation. And then afterwards, we actually do a few moments of uh, journaling after they read the teaching, do the meditation practice. They spend a few moments in reflection through some journaling prompts. And then after that, I share a mobile heart practice for the day. So for example, with loving kindness meditation, the mobile meta moment, um, meta meaning loving kindness, is for example, continue to send yourself and others loving kindness phrases and mantras Uh, throughout the day as you are driving down the highways of LA or riding your Vespa through the rice fields of Bali or (laughs) um, (laughs) walking down the street and you encounter your neighbor. Um, You know, really take this practice with you and let it be a lived expression of your um, working with these specific practices. So in a sense, you know, kindness now, why... I was called to write the book um, for, well, first it was for a variety of reasons, but really one of the main reasons was to really 
make the heart practices, going back to truth and love or wisdom and love, these these two wings of the bird of meditation, in my in my opinion, in my view. You know, we have the wing of awareness, the wing of wisdom, the wing of truth, which is our mindfulness wing of the meditation mm-hmm. bird. Um, how do we learn to live our lives directly in the present moment through studying the mind the best that we can? But then the other wing of the meditation bird, which really allows the bird of our practice to soar and to fly to the heights that it can is the wing of the heart. You know, really, how do we meet the present moment matter of our lives? And we do that through kindness. We do that through compassion. We do that through celebrating and rejoicing in other people's success and happiness, as well as our own through the practice of appreciative joy. And we also do that through cultivating equanimity, like this open heartedness, this ability to stay steady in the midst of change, in the midst of impermanence that we're all in as human beings. So really kindness now is like a mini part of the greater meditation toolbox, specifically focused on the heart practices. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And I think that um, it's the perfect embodiment of that concept that you mentioned earlier, radical accessibility. Uh, we, we think about radical accessibility and we discussed radical accessibility from, from the perspective of uh, meeting the practitioner where we're really at in our lives, which you've done with the meditation toolbox concept here. But also the accessibility of one's own true nature. Mm. In my book, Modern Spirituality, I, I, t- I discuss the, the way that all the different traditions have a reference to a higher nature and a lower nature. Um, and some, some traditions use similar language, some do not. Um, but the, the notion that our higher or maybe truer nature is that loving, compassionate state of awareness um, and and the radical accessibility in this context is it is loving to provide tools. It's yeah. it's loving in the in the many diverse experiences that we can have to honor that another person has a lot of diversity of experiences too. Mm. Um, and so I love that you have embodied those teachings so well as an individual and that you've, you've infused them in your book. I have a question about it. Um, you're a professor at USC and you yes. are, you are with those Gen Z, right? Is that, is that the gen that you're teaching? Gen Absolutely. <laughs> um, how, how are they responding mm. to kindness now? I love that you're asking this because even before I either share or mention that um, my book is Kindness Now and what it focuses on, it's amazing to actually see that in my view, holistically as a group, Gen Z really, really takes to the heart practices. If anything, they are all about compassion and self-compassion and kindness and shared humanity and really allowing for there to be a diversity of experiences and realities present, like you were just mentioning. I feel like Gen Z is actually primed for mindfulness and for heart practice more so than any other group or demographic or audience that I've meditated with um, wow. as a practitioner and as and as a teacher. I'm constantly surprised and moved and like honestly emotionally moved in my classes at USC because when we talk about what it means to um, be unconditional with our compassion, for example, in our classrooms, when we talk about what it means to bring compassion to our most difficult emotions and our difficult thought patterns, like um, habitual thought patterns of anxiety or rumination, when um, my students at USC hear these principles and we talk about these concepts and these theories of practice, they take the um, 
they take the principle, they take the content, they take the topic, and they're already like in that inner work just because of what's already happening more broadly on social media, for example. Uh, personal growth and kindness and compassion, that's accessible like via TikTok and on Instagram and in Snapchat. Um, and if anything, you know, I think that Gen Z is actually, you know, they are, I want to tread lightly on like the wording that I use here, but I think the way that it's expressing in this moment is um, they've normalized allowing there to be a lot of diversity, um, yes. like within their own uh, world or within um, their friend group or even within themselves, to your point. Mm -hmm. uh, one story that comes to mind, actually, that really struck me was I had one student recently who had shared with me that he or that they were a practicing uh, Christian and that they were uh, a practicing Christian along with being in my semester semester long mindfulness class. And we were talking about um, moving through our difficult life challenges in class and how to meet our difficult life challenges from the past, how we used to meet them and how we currently have the opportunity to meet them with resilience. And one of their classmates opened up about their difficult moment was them coming out as a, um, as a gay man and coming out in a country outside of the U.S. where it was not even like allowed to, um, to be, um, you know, you weren't allowed to be homosexual or to like other men. And so it wasn't until they came to the US where they were actually allowed to explore their sexuality in a authentic and genuine way. And I just actually, in my own way, I zoomed out and was just sort of like recognizing the diversity that was present in the room, but also with these two individuals just sitting right next to each other and the amount of compassion and the amount of allowance that I saw, like through body signals and, and body cues, the amount of encouragement that one student was lending to the other as they were sharing their um, difficult life story about not being able to come out and all that that was for them at that time. Um, and then the whole group just holding that same story with such great compassion and empathy, that to me really characterizes Gen Z in a sense. And so they are, again, primed to like be utilizing and working with these practices of compassion, shared humanity and kindness. And they learn these principles, they take them in, and they're literally applying them in real time. Again, even in a, in a more um, efficient and like in a more real time way than I've seen other demographics do. So I love <laughs> getting to, to practice with Gen Z. It's really inspiring for me as a practitioner and just a fellow human being also in like these messy moments that we're all in. Yeah, I love that. You know, when I look at... Um, Gen Z and I, and I meet people who are younger, I feel, I've always felt so unusual. Like mm. growing up, I just felt like such a weird kid and, and people treated me like I was weird and I was called weird a lot. And I was always like out there and, you know, I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm a cross disciplinary person in meditation and I'm that way in other areas and I'm also bisexual and you know, like the list goes on. Um, I'm, I relate to Gen Z. I, when I start yes. to see what they're doing, I'm not exactly dancing on TikTok, but if there was TikTok 15 years ago, I definitely would have been dancing on TikTok. I was dancing 15 years ago. I was, I was even dancing on camera with my own little camcorder, you know, 15 years ago. <laughs> Uh, so I totally would have been on TikTok, you know, and in fact, I was on MySpace. I was like all about MySpace. Mm -hmm. I was like an early social mm -hmm. media adopter. And so I, I have that, um, uh, relatedness and that, that, uh, love and acceptance of Gen Z. I think that a lot of times the, the previous generation 
uh, has like a challenging relationship with the next one. Millennials and Gen Z have like kind of a fun and complicated relationship. Uh, Millennials and boomers have a kind of a challenging, you know, relationship. Yes. Yes. As always, twas always thus, right? (laughs) <laughs> um, uh, but I think that why one of the reasons why you're going to have so much longevity and be and you are and will continue mm. to be such an effective teacher is the amount of love and compassion you have for your students mm. and and your ability to see them. You didn't you didn't have one complaint just now. You just identified such a beautiful, essential quality in all of them which is so crucial uh, for, for educators to be able to have. And you have it so naturally. Mm, thank you, Ben. <laughs> uh, this has been amazing. Uh, I'd love to have you on again. Let's do this again. Uh, where can everyone find you? Where can they get in touch? So Ben, this has been so fun and I can't wait to do this again. I feel like we can flow and just talk into hours of of podcasting and conversation. So thank you for having me here and on your show as well. And yes, please reach out um, to anyone who is is tuned in and listening. You can find me across all of the social media channels at Amanda Gilbert Meditation. You can also find me at my website, which is amandagilbertmeditation.com. And I genuinely mean it. Uh, Send a DM, send an email. I love connecting with folks about practice and anything that really inspired you in our conversation and been a nice conversation here together. I'd love to hear what everyone thinks. Yeah, definitely. And Amanda's content is like perfectly curated. It's gorgeous. <laughs> and it's all really, really um, consistent, not just aesthetically, but consistent mm. messaging. So, you know, we sometimes have like uh, subscriptions or, or you know, things that we commit to because we like how they make us feel. Your content is that way. So definitely follow Amanda on all the channels. And pick up a copy of Kindness Now by Amanda Gilbert, available everywhere books are sold. Yes. Uh, thanks so much, Amanda. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Ben. Hey, it's Ben Decker, and I just have to thank you again for listening to the Modern Spirituality Podcast. For information on anything mentioned here, you can check out the show notes below. You can also get in touch with me via twitter.com slash bendecker, instagram.com slash Benjamin W. Decker, or email me at bendecker at modernspiritualitypodcast.com. It really does mean so much to me that you're here with me on the modern spirituality journey. I'm genuinely super excited about what I've got planned for these next few episodes. So really make sure to subscribe to the Modern Spirituality Podcast so you can get in on what I've got coming up. And if this is resonating for you, if anything here helped or inspired or entertained you at all, please, please do rate this podcast and leave me a review. It means so much more than you might realize. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you again.